listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hi family, how are you? So glad to be with you today, and we're jumping in our series on shaping faith. We're in this section on healthy community, and we're going to talk about one, this, I'm just going to preface this, this is going to feel a little bit more like a therapy session, because we're going to talk about feelings and emotions, and uh, so just be prepared for that. This is not normally how we preach. If you're new here, it's not normally how we preach, but this is going to feel a little bit like a therapy session, so um, just want to invite you into that mindset. Uh, what we're going to talk about today, in my opinion, is huge because it's, it's one of the major drivers in why we can come in here and be moved in the worship and, and emotionally stirred and hear the sermons and be motivated and convicted to change things and make our lives better. And then we walk out the doors and we treat the grocery store clerk like dirt. You know, that, that disconnect that people have with Christians believing one thing and living another, like that, that whole disconnect there is in one of the major places where it's rooted is in what we're going to talk about today. And, and so the good news is, I think for some of us, we can get at least at part of why we struggle to actually walk out our faith, okay? And, and that is that when we have emotions going on inside of us that don't have a name, they cause all kinds of problems. And what happens is we live in a culture that says emotions are weak. Don't let your emotions control you. Turn them off. Here's the reality. If you turn your emotions off or try to, that is when they actually will control you. If you'll own them, talk about them, properly process them, give them a right name, then you can actually put those emotions to bed and move past them. But you can't do that as long as you're trying to deny that they're there. And, and so the, the picture that I want to give you is this. And I'm going to use a lot of analogies that if you've been in my office for any kind of pastoral counseling, you will have heard these before, and that's good. Um, I want you to think about in the back of your mind is a shelf, okay? And every unresolved emotion that you have, because they don't go away, unresolved emotions don't ever go away. They don't disappear. And they're like a beautiful, fine porcelain teacup, okay? And what you do, every time that you have an unresolved emotion, you put it on the shelf in the back of your brain, which is fine until the shelf gets full. And then... You try to put another one on there and you knock one of the other cups off and it falls and it shatters and it goes everywhere. Here's the problem. When the cup shatters, you don't get to pick where it goes or who it cuts. And that's all rooted in unresolved emotion. And so these really weird feelings show up in really bizarre places. I, I had a, a buddy of mine that came into my office and uh, sat down and he was telling me about this fight that he is having with his wife, this intentional moment of fellowship that he was having with his wife. Yeah, they, we don't fight, we're Christians, right? We have intense moments of, of fellowship. Um, and what, what happened was I said, okay, so how are you feeling? How are you feeling? He's like, I was so mad. He didn't use the word mad. It's a word we're gonna use here. So mad. And I said, really, you're mad? What else did you feel? Nothing, just mad. I said, okay. 
So I have this exercise that I put people through in my office, and it's really, it's really uh, eye-opening because we have about five to ten words that we all use uh, typically. This is about the average person has between five and ten words that they use to describe every feeling that there is, which we know there's over 500 so, um, that have been identified. And so that, like five to ten words to describe them all. So I give him this sheet. It has 350 emotion words on it. And I said, I want you to read through the list, and I want you to give me every, um, everything that is attached, every feeling that's attached to mad. Right? It doesn't have to make sense. We're, we're emoting. We're not rationalizing here. So just every feeling that's attached to mad. And he goes through, at the end of reading the list, he has 48 different emotions attached to mad. Well, then what we do is we work through some other exercises, which is, you'll have to come into my office for that. Um, but what happens is, what we figure out in the process is that he doesn't actually feel mad. He feels inadequate and betrayed, which is very different than mad. So he tells his wife, I'm so mad, but he uses his word, and his wife responds to mad and completely misses him because that's not actually what he feels. What he actually feels is inadequate and betrayed which, by the way, happened to actually be rooted in a childhood emotional wound that he never dealt with. Like, th this is, emotional vocabulary is important because you can't avoid them and they are going to take control in your life at some level. And so what we have to be able to do is to put our mind around what's really going on in here and how are we going to appropriately respond to that, okay? So I want to start with 2 Timothy just to make my point here. It says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Okay, question. For who? Everybody. Everybody in this world will have difficulty. And when you have difficulty, you will have an emotional response to that difficulty. Now, you'll also have a cerebral response to it. You will, you'll have a thinking response, but you're also going to have a feeling response. And so if you don't know what that is or how you're supposed to respond to it, what happens is that those feelings fester and grow and get infected and twisted and messed up in your life. And then they start showing up in some really unhealthy ways. Um, for here's why, here's why you're gonna have difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Jake, uh, I'm just saying. I mean, I'm not. A, I'm not saying, but I'm saying. My kids. I read this verse to my kids daily. <laughs> Disobedient to their parents. Like this is in the list. Like look at this list of things that that gets coupled in with. That's a big deal. If you're here and you're like half parents, which is all of us at some level, right? Like disobedient to your parents is a big one. You know what you do when you're disobedient to your parents? You cause difficulty for the people around you. Like you make their lives difficult. And you cause all kinds of negative stuff to go on in them because you're acting out of this selfish place. Ungrateful. Like, do you, you want to know how to help people around you be better? Live a life of gratitude. Like find a thank you in everything that you do. Just live a life of gratitude. You will help everyone around you, not only your own self, but you'll help everyone around you be better. Unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Because these kinds of people exist in the world, and they do, and sometimes if we're honest, we, we act in these ways, some of these ways, if we're honest. Because that's true, we're gonna, there's going to be difficulty in the world, and when we have difficulty in the world, we're going to have an emotional response to it. And if we don't know how to process that emotional response well, then what happens is we wind up being a victim of it. Winds up taking control of us. So here's what I want to do today. What I want to do is look at four kind of coping mechanisms that we use to deal when we have these emotional responses. And I want to lay out like maybe some potential, if it's this or it could be this, or the opposite response of that would be this. If you had, and so if you find yourself in a position where you're acting in one of these negative directions, maybe it's time for us to step back and maybe unravel what's going on internally. What's going on in here? Why am I acting this way? Because I don't agree with it, so why am I doing it? What's going on in here? So let's talk about this. Number one is anger or vengeance as opposed to forgiveness. If you find yourself acting in anger or in a revengeful way, I need to get revenge on this. Maybe it's time to step back and unravel what's going on in here because biblically what God says is vengeance isn't your call. Vengeance is the Lord's. We either trust that or we don't, right? And we show that how, in how we respond in difficult emotional circumstances. Look at, look at Proverbs 15. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Listen, when you get in your intense moments of fellowship with whoever and you respond immediately in anger, the only thing that you're doing is perpetuating the problem. That's the only thing that you're doing. So when you're, when you're getting into it with people, to respond in anger creates strife which we don't want that. James 1.20, it says this, anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Like, ever. Anger doesn't produce righteousness. If you want to experience God's blessing in your life, anger kills the pathway. Like it, It's like you're walking a path towards God's blessing and you decide to blow up and lose your stack. It's like you started digging a big trench in the path to get there. You gave it this thing that you have to overcome. Like anger, is it, and, and so in your, in your notes, there's this cool passage that we used when Emmy and I talked about forgiveness, we used it out of Judges 15 in the story of Samson. And, and in the interest of time, I'm just gonna tell you the story. I won't read it for you, but here's what was going on. So Samson, uh, he got married to a Philistine woman and then he left, he took off and her dad thought that Samson was gone, like he didn't love her or nothing. So he married her off to somebody else. So Samson comes back after a period of time. And he's like, hey, I want my wife. And he's like, well, she's married to someone else. And so Samson gets mad, catches 300 fox, ties, ties their tails together in pairs, lights them on fire and sends them through the wheat fields. You know, like you would if you were found in such a situation. <laughs> 300 foxes he catches. It's crazy. 
And he says, well, I'm only doing to them what they did to me. I'm just getting back. I'm just doing to them what they, and then they retaliate, and then he retaliates, and then they retaliate, and then he retaliates and kills a thousand, like a thousand people died because there was this, this vengeful attitude on both sides. Nobody was willing to say, I'm done. No more. Nobody was willing to say that. It's no, 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 no. I'm just doing to you what you did to me. Here's the problem with anger. It's not just what you did to me. Anger and revenge always goes a little bit more. It always goes a little bit more. Oh, you did this? Well, I'm going to do this. Because the goal of retaliation is to show you I'm more powerful than you. Somebody along the way has to go, I, I'm, this is dumb. This is ridiculous. Where this is going is nowhere healthy for us or for anybody else. Somebody's got to be willing to stop it. That's where forgiveness lies. So if you find yourself in a position of anger or needing to take revenge, it might be good to step back and process what's really going on in here? What's really happening? You know, I had, we have a couple family in our church, Fraser and Bobby. They have a little girl uh, who a lot of us have been praying for. Um, I know that Rod has been sending out emails to the group leaders each week with updates for her. She, uh, she has all kinds of medical problems, kidneys not working well, lungs not working well, and she's been in a hospital for a long time, a uh, long time, and we've been praying for her. And uh, Fraser was actually here Thursday night, and so I got to talk with him, and he made this kind of, he's like, you know, um, one of the things that the doctors keep saying is we're so thankful that you're not angry. Because when you're in that crisis mode where your kid, like it's your kid, right? When you, you my mama bear comes out and, and a lot of parents are really, they question the doctors about everything and, and what, what the doctors have said is we really enjoy working with you because you're not angry. Like it matters. They're like, in, in fact, he said, he said one of the doctors told him I don't really understand the peace that you have. <laughs> I was like, I know. Um, <laughs> but that, I mean, that was, uh, I said, Fraser, can I share your story? Can I, can I say that story? Because it's so exactly what we're talking about. When we don't process emotion in a healthy way, it gets the best of us in some really unhealthy ways. So that's the first one. Second one is blame or burden shifting uh, versus ownership. We're gonna play the blame game. It's your fault. It's not my fault, it's your fault. It's your fault that I feel X. Whatever that is, it's your fault. So let me give you a little statement. You can write this down. This is tweetable, so you may wanna throw it up on the Twitter sphere. You may wanna twit um, about it. Here it is. No one has the power to cause, control, or cure my emotional state. Let me say it again. No one has the power to cause, control, or cure my emotional state. My emotions are my emotions. They happen. Now, when somebody does something, I have emotional response to it, but it's not their fault. My emotional response is in here. And if I try to put it on them to fix my emotional well-being, that becomes all kinds of problematic. 
No one has the power to cause, control, or cure my emotional state. That is my responsibility. And let's say, hypothetically, that they did have the power to cause my emotional state. They don't, but let's say they did. It would still be mine to deal with. I still have to be the one to take care of it. And so consequently, it would be better for us to just understand the truth that no one has that power. The good news about that is I don't have to live as a victim in the world. Like I can own where my emotions are at, process them, and move past them. I can do that. That's good news. That's good news. What we do in the world is we do a whole bunch of blame and burden shifting. It's your fault that my world sucks because of you. That's just simply not true. It's just simply not true. And, and it's a dangerous, like pretty soon you find yourself all alone and then you go, my world sucks because I'm so lonely. Yep. <laughs> Why? Look at Colossians 3. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These things have a tendency to drive the blame game. And so what I want to do is take a look at Genesis chapter 3, this story, and here's what's going on in Genesis 3. Uh, Adam and Eve have just eaten the fruit, and they realized that they were naked, and they jumped into the trees and hid, okay? So let's take a look at Genesis 3. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God said, called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, I always want to pause here and ask this question. Does God need to ask this question? The answer is no. Good job. God doesn't need to answer, ask this question. What God is doing here is like, do you guys remember the old detective show Columbo? Where he just plays like all the people who are like over 45 are like, oh yeah, that was a great show. All the, all the, t- <laughs> the college students are like, is that on Netflix? Uh, is that on Hulu? <sighs> Google it. Columbo was this detective who just was brilliantly stupid. He was dumb like a fox. And so what he would do is just when he was in the moment, he's done all of his investigation and he's gathered all of his information and now it's time to confront the bad guy. And he would just play like, this is what God's doing. Where are you? I don't know. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then... Well, who told you you were naked? Told you, you were, what have you been doing? What have you been doing, Adam? Who told you you were naked? Like he totally corners him, right? Have, have you eaten from the, of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So he realizes, busted. The first thing Adam does is the man of the house. That woman you gave me, she made me do it. <laughs> Oh, glory. It's not my fault that I ate the fruit. She shoved it in my mouth, and you made her to be my helpmate, my counterpart, my blessing, my, so I wouldn't be alone. God, so it's pretty much your fault, God. It's pretty much your fault that this happened. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, I know I blew it. That snake, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
This is the blame game. This is what happens when we want to not own. And it's because there's emotional response going like, I'm, uh, I'm caught. Uh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So we try to get out of it. If you find yourself in the blame game, it might be good to step back and consider what's happening internally. What am I actually feeling? And how is that leading to this blaming and lack of ownership, okay? Third one, manipulation versus encouragement. We're gonna move through this quickly. Ephesians chapter four. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If you're gonna go around and, because here's what happens. People get their feelers hurt by someone and then what we do is we go to our people and we immediately start talking bad about the person who hurt our feeling and we form alliances. We get our little army together, our little cohesive unit together, and then what we do is, just in case I need you guys for an attack, you know you're on my side, right? You're on my side, this is my side, because there's sides, hypothetically. Like you're on my side. And, and then we try to manipulate the circumstances. What, what Paul's saying in the letter to the Ephesians is, like, don't do that. Don't. Don't do that. You should never do that. Proverbs 14, 12. Here's why. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way to death. You can do that, but it's not going to turn anywhere good. No matter how good you think it is in the moment, it's not going to go anywhere good. It's because remember, if you look, remember our series on Romans, acts that lead to life, lead to life. Acts that lead to death, lead to death. Always. You're never going to do an act that leads to death and go, oh, that turned out well. It's not going to happen. Look at Genesis 29. This is a story. So Jacob's trying to find a wife. So he goes to his uncle's house. And while he's staying at his uncle's house, he um, is working as a lead shepherd, tending the sheep. And so it says, Laban came to Jacob and says, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages would be. What do you want? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. She was amazing. She had big buns on her head. Kill her with a laser pistol. She was... Killer with a bit of a diva off camera, I've heard, though. So um, we don't know. Don't know for sure. I wasn't there. The name of the younger was Rachel, and Leah's eyes were weak. That's another sermon for another day. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So it's first cousin. Like, it's better that I give your cousin to you. <laughs> so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. It's probably the most romantic statement in the whole Bible, right? Uh, <laughs> I can tell you what it feels like herding sheep. Seven years. That's what it feels like. Then <laughs> and then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of that place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Now, that raises all kinds of questions, right? Like number one, how did he not know? Number two, how was it okay? Number three, what is Laban thinking? And uh, on on a number of other things. But here's what happens. After this, Jacob gets his feelings hurt and he manipulates Laban. 
And he says, here's my wages. After he gets the wives, he says, here's my wages. I want, I'll take all the sheep that are born speckled. That'll be the payment. And then God gets to decide how much I make. So then he puts poplar branches in front of the ewes while they're giving birth. Why does that affect speckled sheep? I don't know. No one knows. Nobody's, nobody's figured that one out yet. But apparently it had some kind of a thing. And there was lots of speckled sheep. Like Jacob, because he is maneuvered by Laban, he spurs him to maneuver himself. Like he starts to manipulate. This is the problem when we don't acknowledge what's going on internally. Last one. Let's go. Last slide. Last point. There we go. Uh, Withdrawal versus engagement. A lot of people just withdraw. It's just easier to just... And and sometimes, sometimes it's because um, the person hurt you. Sometimes it's because you're just hurting and the person is attached to the situation in some way and you don't want to risk. And, and so there's all these things going on internally and we just withdraw. I just want to get away from you. Right? Look at, look at this. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. When does a friend love? At all times, especially the nasty ones, especially the hard ones. That doesn't change. A friend loves at all times, and a brother's born for adversity. Like if the way that you know somebody's actually a friend is that they don't run when things get hard. That's the way that you know. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight: A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. This is what they do. And they're forming their alliances. Right? Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. If you really want to mess your life up, isolate yourself. It's a class A way to do that. Because we're designed for community. So to walk with the Lord will always bring us toward connection, not away from it. And the hard part about that is we live in a culture that values independence. We see independence as strength. And so we hope to work our way towards not needing people anymore. But if you're going to walk with Jesus, that's always going to lead you towards relationships, not away from them. That's just the way it is. Because that's what God's desire is for us. Satan's goal is for you to be separated from other people. That's Satan's goal. God's goal is for us to be connected with one another. And so you have a choice. But in order to be connected to people well, we're going to have to be able, when we're in those moments where we're not responding well, to step back and unravel what the heck is going on in here. Because I guarantee you there's an emotion, an unspoken emotion, maybe multiple emotions, unspoken, that are going on and that I can't name. I can't name them, and that's the problem. Now, before any of you come up to me, because this has happened all weekend, and go, hey, that emotion word list, word, can I get a copy of yours? The answer is no. Here's how you get your copy. Google it. <laughs> emotion word list. You will find over a million. <laughs> Try to find one that's got somewhere between two, 250 and 500 words. Like, that'll give you a good 
really good baseline, a good broad spectrum baseline on emotions. And so with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table, which we take communion every week. And uh, if you're willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, we have an open table. You're welcome to partake in this. But while they're passing that out, we want you to hold the elements till the end. We'll take them all together. And we are going to work through some questions for our home groups this week. And I really encourage you to get into a home group. Like all the all the emotions that keep us from home group, this would actually be a great week for you to jump in because we're going to talk about them. Um, this is where we start talking about our feelings. So some of you guys are like, I'm in a home group, but I'm already feeling sick for Thursday. <laughs> I get it. I know it's a scary topic. It's a big topic. It's an overwhelming topic even. I want to encourage you to really consider making it a priority to get into a home group because it'll be better for you. If you're not going to be doing that, then um, wherever you have your spiritual conversations, if that's around the dinner table, if that's uh, whatever, wherever it is, I'd love for you um, to jump on some of these questions maybe as you process the sermon this week. Question number one, why do you avoid your emotions? Like not you generally, but you specifically. What is it about emotions that causes you to run? And even if you're like, well, I'm generally pretty good at talking about my emotions. Well, that's great. But what about um, the times when you're not? What's the driver of avoiding it? Is it that I feel exposed? I feel vulnerable? I don't, I don't like vulnerability. That's, it's, I'm struggling with that. Whatever it is for you, what causes you to avoid your emotions? Okay, question number two. Which of the avoiding mechanisms mentioned is your go-to? Is it anger? Is it manipulation? Is it withdrawing? You just withdraw? Like, what's your, what's your coping skill for when you don't want to talk about what's going on in here? Question number three. What would it do for you to be able to give a voice to what's really going on in your heart? I think that for many of us sitting in the room today, that we would go, that's an immediate negative thing. If I gave a voice to what was really going, in, going on in my heart, it wouldn't be stewarded well out here. Maybe. Maybe you're right. But what if you're wrong? What if in sharing what's going on in here, what if it got received correctly? And what if that changed everything? What if that led to freedom in your life? What if that led to breakthroughs in your life? What if that? We'll never know unless we obey God in taking the risk. Their phone agrees with me. Last question. What do you need to do to conquer? What do you need to conquer? Sorry, I, get, I can read. What do you need to conquer to start talking about where you really are? What's the block? What's the stick point? What's the place where you're like, I can share this far but no further? I know, you know, we sang this song earlier today. I know breakthrough is coming. By faith, I see a miracle. You know where I see it? on the other side of that thing that you gotta conquer. That's where it's at. We gotta get through there. 
Like all the, the next level of what God has for us is just beyond the place where we get stuck and we gotta be willing to push through. With, with that idea, I love taking communion because to me, it, all, it always, everything about the Christian life begins with this one single point of living out what Jesus modeled for us and laying our lives down. Our agendas, our fears, our brokenness, our stuff, lay it down. And I would just invite us to consider that in taking communion today that maybe we're saying to ourselves and to the people around us that we're committed to pushing through that breakthrough, pushing through that, that stick point, that thing that we need to conquer, whatever it is, whatever it is for you. And if you're like, I don't really know what it is, then maybe you need to spend some time with the Lord and figure that out. Spend some time with the Lord and with your people, maybe in your group this week. Let's process that. I don't know what's keeping me stuck. I just know I get to this point and I can't get past it. This reminds us that Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is shed for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, um, in the world of emotion, I sometimes stand in front of you wondering why you did that. Um, what in the world was going on there. And yet I also understand that emotion gives color and depth and beauty and wonder and marvel to the world. And these are all things that are important. And so Lord, I pray that you would help each of us, wherever we're at, wherever we're coming from, to be able to steward the gift of emotion well. That it wouldn't get the best of us and that it wouldn't bring out the worst of us. And Lord, uh, I just wanna say again that... um, as we work through this, rally people around us that can help make this something that's beautiful in your name, amen. Now, before you guys leave today, we have an announcement that I wanna, I wanna help you guys be aware of what's going on. So we're gonna have our, our elders coming up. Most of you know that uh, June the 9th will be my last Sunday here. <laughs> yeah. So I hear there's an Oz and then there's like, um, there's, there's a lot of both. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I feel betrayed. Um, just messing with you. Uh, anyway, I just, wanted to, I just wanted to update you. So these are our elders. And I want to say this on the, on the front end of this. I'm super proud of our elders. This, this has been uh, a rough go of trying to figure out and sift through all the stuff and they have prayed and fasted and fasted and prayed. They have prayed and prayed and they have fasted and fasted. Um, The good news is they've all lost weight. Um, This is my pastoral health plan for the elders. They're fasting and praying Um, and and wrestled with a lot because number one, um, number one, we've been here a long time. We've been here 12 years and that's a long time tenure for a pastor. Number two, as the founding pastor, this group of people collectively hasn't had someone else take the helm. Like when you've been in an existing church for a while, you see that and it's, it's okay. Um, and so they've had to wrestle with like, okay, let's make some decisions about number one, really what are we as a church? Uh, number two, how does that impact who we choose? Um, and number three, um, we have to filter all the voices of people that um, have no shortage of opinions about what they think should happen next. Um, 
And that, and that listen, it's okay. Uh, that's not wrong. It's just true. And there's a lot of them. And for the person giving the opinion, it's just one. But for the people receiving the opinions, it's 100. And so there's a lot to filter through. Um, these guys have done well at handling all that with grace um, and honoring the process of the Lord showing us what he's doing in the midst of a really just tough season of eldership and, and all the different changes that are going on here. Uh, and so I'm really proud of them. I think you guys should be proud of your elders for that. <clears throat> that being said, uh, the elders have made a decision about what we are, and I agree with it. I think it's the right decision. Um, everything that we are as real life is rooted in relational discipleship. That's what makes real life real life. That's who we are. Everything else that we do serves that truth. That's what we've believed from day one. That's what we came down here to do. That's the piece of our ministry that God has continued to honor. And that's the thing that going forward, we really want to protect. And so with that in mind, um, we have made a decision um, and I believe that the decision that was made, there is nobody that knows relational discipleship better, including myself, than Josh and Carrie Gray. And so they will be stepping in to the lead pastor role here when we're gone. You guys come up. Uh, now here's, here's the good news. Um, so... Turns out that with my dad leaving and my wife leaving and myself leaving, that all of a sudden there's a whole lot of staff dollars available. I don't understand that. But um, what that means is uh, Josh is gonna be able to staff around himself and who he is and, and kind of how to supplement him as a leader. And, and that's a good thing because Josh trying to run my ministry would not be successful that me trying to run his ministry, like nobody trying to step into the realm of somebody else. So there are some things that are gonna change. Here's my, my opinion though. I think they're gonna change for the better. I think that Josh is gonna be able to step in and lead this church to places that I would not have been able to take it as a leader. I'm just not, I'm not right for that. And, and I can also tell you this, some of the things that we've dreamed about for years as a church, as far as like, uh, lifestyle Rehabilitation Center and helping people get out of the system and not stay dependent on it in an intentional way, those pieces are starting to move forward and that will continue. And, and so I say that they're gonna, they're gonna reveal all that at the right time. I say all that to say, Josh isn't planning on taking this church and going, it's mine now, phew, left field, right? That's not where he's headed. What he wants to do is to continue building on what God's already been doing here. Um, which has been pretty incredible. We've had a pretty incredible 12 years here. Um, what God's done has been amazing and they're gonna continue to be a part of that and build on it and make it better. Uh, and I need to get out of the way for them to be able to do that. And so um, what we're gonna do as elders is just put our hands on them gently, gently, and uh, pray for them. And then also would love for you guys to do a air lay on of hands um, <laughs> if you can do that, and uh, we will pray for them and set them apart as the new leaders. Um, let's pray. Lord, we believe in you as 
the true leader of all the church and that what you're doing here is moving this church forward, not setting it back. And Lord, I'm thankful that you have provided somebody like Josh to be my friend over the last seven years and uh, to watch him continue to grow and emerge. Um, it is, I'm just very thankful, God, that this is what you've chosen. Um, and as elders, the elders stand in, in unanimous agreement on this. And Lord, um, I just pray that you give them favor in the community. Lord, 96% of this community does not go to church. Uh, give Josh and Carrie and Real Life on the Palouse favor to change that number. Um, God, we trust you with all the things, all the details that are going on. And I love that in, in moving one direction in my life, you've covered all the spots in, another, in, in all these other pieces. Thank you for being the God who sees details. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.